Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Kind of where we're going to go today um, when it comes to uh, the Gospel of Luke, um, just as a way of reminder. Um, so we have Matthew. If we were going to say, you know, here's kind of a, a portrait of Matthew's Gospel, uh, we would say kind of the Messianic King. And if we talked about Mark's gospel, uh, we kind of said the messianic secret or the secret, Messiah, the, the secret of the Messiah being revealed. And the question was this, you know, at the end of the gospel of Mark, um, will we go and tell or will we be afraid? And so Mark's gospel kind of leaves off with that. Um, we knew that Matthew was Jewish. He's a follower of Jesus. And last week we said that with Mark, likely he is following along, along with Peter. And he is relaying some of the stories that he's heard Peter, or perhaps with Peter, relaying some of these stories that Peter has told. But Mark, especially, very fast-paced, immediately, and, 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 he loves those kinds of words. He doesn't stop and pause for Jesus' teaching very long. So there's not big blocks of teaching like there are in Matthew. He's just telling stories, one after the other. But he adds unique details that perhaps only Peter knew or that Peter wanted to make sure were in there. And so those two are different. And then we come to Luke's gospel. And the three that we've studied up until this point, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are those three that are called the synoptics. So they, they have a lot in common, especially compared to the gospel of John. And, and yet Luke has a unique perspective of his own in the sense that um, he's the only Gentile. Uh, Luke is the only author we know in the New Testament that is not Jewish in his background. Um, we don't know a ton about Luke. We don't know where he's from. There's some, there's some hypotheses about where Luke is from because in the book of Acts that he writes, there's a switch from Paul, speaking about Paul um, in, in a second person, to a, to a first person plural, we, in some of the travel narratives. So Paul went, Paul went, Paul went, or they went, they went, they went, to now we went, and we set sail for. And Luke writes himself into the the, the story of Acts, but kind of like John in the Gospel of John, perhaps like Mark, if, if Mark is the young man who runs away in the garden, leaving his garment behind, and he runs away naked, if that's Mark writing himself in his story anonymously, um, Luke does that in the, in the book of Acts um, by these we travel narratives. And as we read Paul's letters, we recognize that Luke travels with Paul as well. Uh, Luke is a Gentile and perhaps was picked up somewhere around Antioch, which is in Syria, but we really don't know. Um, some of the things we do know about him is that he was also a physician. Uh, we learned that in Colossians 4.14 is where Paul says that. Now, when I think physician, I think like ER doctor, I think um, someone who in the social world of like careers, uh, in fact, my kids have the game of life, which apparently has been updated. Um, and so like they get the career cards. Well, physician is one of those, right? That is like top tier salary, that kind of a thing. Uh, even status seen that way. That's not necessarily true for physician in the ancient world. Um, they were oftentimes slaves or servants. And again, don't think American slavery here. Think um, benefactor, client society. Uh, they were oftentimes someone who worked for a household or a benefactor, meaning large household. 
And so they would work there as a servant. Um, they, they studied. Uh, the Greeks uh, had kind of a heritage of studying um, medicine. And some of our medicine, honestly, terminology as well as imagery, uh, the imagery you see on the back of an ambulance of, of the snake around the pole is from Greek mythology. And so uh, we have even, uh, when it comes to how we define personalities in people, uh, we model that after some of the, the Greek um, kind of different categories that they had for people. So, so Luke, in, in very much a sense, is a, a physician, a doctor. And here's what you'd expect. You'd expect a doctor to speak differently about things like miracles, like physical healing miracles. And in fact, he does. Um, someone has written an entire book. By no means are we going to even dive into it. But just talking about some of the unique words that Luke uses, and we're not going to do Greek word studies, but some of the unique words he uses to talk about some of these healings. And then in the book of Acts, to talk about like when Paul gets bit by a snake and other things, that he uses terminology that, that is so different and also um, so connected to some of the historical documents we have of medical jargon, terminology, that we go, okay, what Paul says about him in Colossians 4.14 fits the way he writes some of these healing stories. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. One of the theories is that Luke travels around with Paul in part to be his personal physician. So I've done a lot of medical missions trips, by the way. Um, and so in medical missions trips, you know, if you're a nurse here in the United States, when you go down to Haiti, you're going to do like full out surgery. Um, so that they'll just pra- practice sutures and those kinds of things on mangoes and we're down there and they'll end up doing, you know, full out surgery down there. Um, medical missions is a thing. And it makes sense when you study um, all the things that have happened to Paul. He might want a doctor, a physician to travel along with him. He's getting stoned. He's getting beaten up with clubs. He's shipwrecked. Um, and so at some point, it would make sense for a physician to follow along with him, let alone there's an entourage of people uh, that travel around, along with Paul. So him being the only Gentile author, you would expect him to not only talk about uh, medical issues on the doctor side, but also talk about Gentile perspective of being an outsider uh, following this Jewish Messiah. That's fairly unique and not so much for us because we're, we're actually used to this idea of Gentiles being Christians. Um, in fact, if anything, sometimes we need to be reminded that like Christianity started with Jewish people first. We need to be reminded that, that we came to Israel through like Israel, and we are the ones grafted into Israel. And yes, those who did not follow the Messiah, according to uh, New Testament, have been cut off, but that's not all Israel. And so this perspective of a Gentile following Jesus uh, can be one of two things. Number one, it can be surprising to us that, that it is such a shock that Gentiles can follow Jesus. But number two, it can actually be helpful because we we actually aren't Jewish uh, for the most part. Uh, and so as we kind of look at our perspective, oftentimes um, we can come to this. So I've studied both with those who have Jewish heritage in their past. We had a Messianic uh, Jewish person attend our church in Illinois. And guess where I studied? Gospel of Matthew. Um, oftentimes with other people who are scientific or critical or even Western in the way they think, they want facts, they want proof, they want witnesses. I actually go to the Gospel of Luke because he cares about those types of things. He wants to prove 
that Jesus was the Messiah, that he came and did uh, what he did. Uh, Luke was not an eyewitness. Luke went and found eyewitness testimony. And that could be really helpful for someone to say, Luke didn't see this. He needed to prove this not only to himself, but also to this person he seems to be writing for named Theophilus. And we'll talk about that person in just a moment. Um, so if I'm going to put a portrait for Luke's gospel up here, it's going to be Jesus the Savior. He loves that word Savior and salvation more than any other gospel. Jesus the Savior of all people. And not only does Luke like outsiders, um, he talks a lot about, uh, not only does he you know, focus on Gentiles, he talks a lot about all outsiders. So women are you know, culturally an outsider that he focuses on, and we'll talk about some of those lists here in just a moment. Um, the other thing, just kind of introductory, that we want to talk about, uh, Luke is a two-part series, which the other Gospels, I mean, I guess with Gospel of John, you could kind of see John, the letters of John, and Revelation as being connected, but they're definitely not like a part one, part two, like Luke Acts really is. And because the Gospel of John comes between them, we sometimes don't see them that way. But even nar- like the narrative features of Luke and Acts show that they are meant to be part one, and part two. And in fact, very much a Greco-Roman, a Greek biographer style of writing, the way that he tells a story. And we'll, we'll talk about the birth narrative of Jesus. We'll talk about the birth narrative of the church and recognize that Luke is writing in a, in a style that would be um, familiar, if not attractive, to his audience. Because he paints Jesus, his picture of Jesus is in a way that plugs him into kind of a framework of how they normally talked about key leaders and world changers. That would make sense today. Like if we were going to write a story about Jesus, we'd probably write it in a familiar fashion. So we'd write it like a biography. You know, I've read like, I I love historical biographies. So like 1776 by David McAuliffe, one of my favorite uh, authors, you know, biography, historical biography of of George Washington. Um, And so there's kind of a format for that. Here's where he was born. Here's how he grew up. Here's his parents. Here's his grandparents. Here's his lifestyle growing up. We have those kinds of things. And they did as well. And Luke actually is the only one who tells the story of Jesus at age 12. Why is that? Well, because that's actually how you told an ancient biography of a leader. You took a big snapshot of their birth, quick snapshot of their coming of age years, and then their years of influence. So you kind of fast forwarded to their years of influence, but you took these snapshot sample pictures of key things that they did. And so whether that's a, you know, there's, there's ancient biographies of political rulers like ruling over their family, like the cousins and brothers and sisters, you know, like acting like a king. In fact, there's one story of a king who was exiled um, because his whole family was being executed. And so he's off. He doesn't know he's a king, but the biography of him is off playing with friends acting like he's the king, even like to the point of wanting to execute friends, things like that. And, and he come to find out he is the king. And the way he acted when he was a kid is the same way he ends up acting as an adult. And so those kinds of familiar frameworks, um, we can observe in other biographies and go, Luke is using some of those same stylistic uh, frames uh, to put Jesus into as well. And that seems to be some of the, you know, again, the Luke uh, story of Jesus at age 12, even some of the, the birth narrative uh, material. So here's, here's another thing that's interesting about the Luke-Acts connection. I, I'm going to kind of draw this. Um, Luke seems to be more than, um, well, because of Acts, uh, Luke seems to be focused on kind of the Rome 
connection with Jesus. So it's in Luke's birth narrative. It's not right away, but it's in Luke's birth narrative where we see all these, all these lists of rulers. In fact, it's kind of just our traditional Christmas story. We read it every year um, in the Gospel of Luke. So I'm going to flip over there and just give you an example of what I'm talking about. So in Luke chapter 2, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus and all the world should be registered. You remember that line? Okay. And then he starts going through all the governors and all of those types of things. Uh, Luke is very intentional at couching this birth narrative story in a Roman context. Rome seems to be on the throne. And, and I'm not, you know, when I say Rome at the very beginning of this story, I recognize Luke actually starts his gospel, if you flip over, in the temple. And so I want to recognize this key theme, and we'll come back to it as well. Geographically, this story begins in the temple, but he puts it also in Roman context. And here's what we're going to find. Slowly through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to move from Rome to Jerusalem. In fact, over and over again, Luke's going to say he was going, these are those references there, he was going to Capernaum, he was going down, he was going here, he was going there. It's very much a travel narrative. Here's where our key character is going right now. But as Jesus goes, he goes down through Samaria. The story couched in Rome ends up starting in Galilee. Um, By the way, the nickname for Galilee was Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because Galilee was on the fringe and it was where a lot of Gentiles had segregated in. Right on the other side of that was the Decapolis, the 10 cities of Gentiles. And so you're going to get a lot more interaction with Gentiles up here in Galilee. Then you come through Samaria to Judea, the region where Jerusalem's from, the the southern tribe of Judah, and then ultimately to the city of Jerusalem. In 951, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, there's a verse that said Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem. Like our key leader, just our key character, and that you can almost picture it in a movie, right? All of a sudden he's looking, he's going, that's where I'm heading. And it's this travel narrative of Jesus going. Now, this is the gospel of, of Luke. There's a, there's a little bit of a hinge or an overlap at the end of this with the resurrection and the ascension. And then we come to the book of Acts, and guess where we start? We start in Jerusalem, and again, there's an overlap. We hear a little bit of a rewind of the tape. It's like episodes, which I tend to binge watch uh, episodes on like Amazon and Netflix, right? So it's kind of annoying. Because they'll like rewind for like a minute and a half, three minutes sometimes. And you're like, I know, I just watched this like a second ago. And you're like, how can I fast forward through this? That's just how TV has changed. But when Luke is writing this, he rewinds just a moment, gives you a little overlap. Here's where we are. Jesus is here, but he's going. He's leaving the spirit. He ascends in the, in the, the book of Acts. They're in Jerusalem. And in fact, they're in the temple. Notice where both stories start. Both Luke, the gospel, and Acts, the story of the church, start in the temple. But Jerusalem becomes this key player. Now, this story eventually will move toward Rome. And what will happen is, like Jesus, Paul has his eyes on Rome. He's moving the entire thing to Rome. So as the Messiah, with the whole Gentile world, focuses everything in on Jerusalem, on that cross... The entire Gentile world comes down to this moment that matters to the entire world in Jerusalem at this cross. 
And from that cross, it goes out back again to the entire world. I think that's what Luke's doing. And it makes sense for a Gentile who's living in the Roman context to say, you think the world's all about Rome? It's actually not. Let me bring you to Jerusalem. He brings us to Jerusalem, tells us the story of Jesus dying, rising again. And then he says, and this has implications on the entire world. And so in the book of Acts, we go from Jerusalem, and if you remember the beginning, to Samaria and to the ends of the world. In fact, it's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So he actually just reverses that progression back out uh, from that place. Now, again, this is one of the things that I typically don't see. When I put these two Luke-Acts books together, and even, you know, even kind of the high school way that we analyze literature, I would go, oh yeah, I see that now. So it's not biblical scholar, it's just looking through it going, what is this author doing? And for some reason, we don't tend to read scripture that way, um, but there's strength in that. And, and here's maybe one of the, the weaknesses of kind of how we've been taught to study literature that is translated in how we study the Bible, is we've been taught to ask the question, what does this mean to me? Not what did this mean to Luke? Because if I ask the question, what does it mean to me? I can kind of make up whatever I want, whatever I'm feeling for the moment. But if we ask what does it mean to Luke, we actually need to ask, like, what is Luke doing? What is he trying to say? And then we can go, and what does that mean to me? What does that mean for me? Not necessarily mean to me, I'm going to make it up. Um, some of that is kind of just the existentialism that we have in our day of, like, self-focus that says this is ultimately just about me and I get to make up my own truth. Um, when we ask, what did the author say? Author's intended meaning is what we talk about. And kind of, uh, if, by the way, this is also a key issue in like the study of the Constitution. Not, it doesn't matter what the original authors of the Constitution meant or just what we mean. Um, that has actually changed how we've studied even that document, let alone the Bible uh, as well. So, so this hinge is kind of interesting. Now, here's the other thing that's, uh, I wrote this up here. We have two birth narratives. So in the Gospel of Luke, it makes sense. We have birth narrative of Jesus. We have Jesus brought about by the Holy Spirit, right? Angels come. Um, they come to Mary. They come. There's key announcements that are made. Um, the temple is a key part of this, uh, which is, uh, you know, where a lot of the priestly families are and a lot of the priestly figures that play John the Baptist's dad, those kinds of things. We also have Jewish leadership opposition, so we have that dynamic going here, and we have prayer as a key part of this. The people who are waiting for the Messiah are people of prayer, people of worship. In the book of Acts, we have the birth of the church. So we have the Messianic people being born. And again, we have the Holy Spirit, we have opposition, we have prayer, and it takes place, key part of it, in the temple. So, so Luke is saying the church is supposed to, the church is supposed to look just like Jesus. And so the church does. The church ends up looking like Jesus. And in fact, Paul, as a figurehead for the church, as he's going to Rome, his journey is going to look eerily similar. Some of the miracles he does, some of the miracles Peter does and Paul, they actually overlap. So you have miracles that Jesus did, and then you have a miracle that Peter did. Notice Jesus, Jewish, uh, so this is Peter, and then you have Paul going to the Gentiles. So we even have kind of this Jewish Peter, the, the um, apostle to the Jewish people, kind of, although he's the one who unlocks the door of the Gentiles, 
right? These are kind of just stereotypes that we talk about. Um, but Paul, definitely that one who takes this out to the Gentiles. We have this movement. All of them have similar miracles that echo each other. All of them have similar uh, opposition. But ultimately, Paul's trials at the very end, they're almost this weird echo of the trials of Jesus. In fact, he's in, some of, in front of some of the same, not only political offices, like Pilate, and then it's Festus and Felix. But he's also in front of some of the same families, Herod's family. So you have these weird threads that say, so was true with Jesus, so is going to be true with the church as the church is taking this message out from Rome. So we have that birth narrative, Holy Spirit, travel narratives, trial. Um, and then Holy Spirit is just this huge, so obviously Holy Spirit. But even this phrase, which we can dialogue about this at some point, this phrase filled with the Holy Spirit is something that Luke grabs hold of. That, by the way, is a fairly big deal if you think about it. Um, Not only just, obviously it's a big deal for all of us, but for a Gentile to now have interaction with like the presence of God. Because where were they excluded from? The temple. So they couldn't have the presence of God. And so to to become the temple, to have God's presence inside of us, this is what a lot of, and I don't know if you know this or not, the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman world was fairly mysterious, but also was uh, one of the, the wonders of the world, the seven wonders of the world. We talk about those kinds of things. Like they, there's a curiosity factor about this. Um, they traveled to see this often. And there were non-Jewish people who were known as God-fearers, people who respected this idea that there was a God that wasn't an idol, a God that had a holy book. That's not true for most of the religions of that time. A God who is the creator God, the only God. That was, that turned some eyes. And enough so that we even know from, from scripture that there were you know, centurions who were helping support local synagogues. They were God-fearing people, but because of their non-Jewish background, still were distanced. And, and so these are, are pretty big things for them. Um, so as we kind of get through the, the bottom of the first page, obviously we've already mentioned the genealogy. That in Luke's genealogy, he doesn't put it at first. He puts it uh, in, later on in the narrative. But it goes all the way back to Adam. Jesus is here for all people. So kind of like the move to Rome and the move back to Jerusalem, he does that in the genealogy. Let's, let's go all the way back to the beginning. This is for all people. Um, questions, questions about that thus far? That's kind of big picture narrative thus far. All right, so we're going to focus in uh, a little bit more. And what we want to do is go ahead and open up uh, your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're only going to read four verses. Um, so we're going to read Luke 1, 1 through 4. And then we'll flip over to Acts and we'll read chapter 1 of Acts, verses 1 through 5. So if somebody could read that for us, that would be great. All right, thank you. So here's what I want to ask you to do, and whether you write in your Bibles or not, take those first four verses and circle all of the words that describe Luke's process. The fact that he is an outsider, 
investigating. Right, right. Just circle some of those words that are interesting to you. Carefully investigating. Yeah. Like yeah. So what what do we have? We have we have, and there's a handful of words. I don't have them all counted up. What do we have? Undertaken. Okay. Drop an account. Drop an account. Undertaken. Investigated. Even words like certainty. I'm not sure how that's translated in all of yours. Do you have the word eyewitnesses or testimony? So eyewitnesses, testimony. What, and here's the reason I'm asking you to just focus on those. When you read these introductory first four verses, this is drastically different than how Mark opens up his gospel. Well, Matthew, Mark, and John. What do those first four verses make you think about Luke? It's like he's kind of an outsider almost looking in or trying to figure out himself. I, I think he is. Like, I think he's trying to go, what really happened? Right. I mean, almost like the, the Lee Strobel guy, like case, case for Christ kind of guy, right? Like, okay, I'm going to investigate a reporter. I'm going to interview as many people as I can. I'm going to drop an orderly account with eyewitness testimony so that you know the certainty of the things that happened. Now, then we have this name, Theophilus. And the reality is we have no idea who Theophilus is. In fact, we don't even know if Theophilus is a he or a figurehead idea. Here's why. This word Theophilus um, comes from the word Theo, um, which, not that you care a whole lot, um, this is um, the name for God. So we have the word, I didn't mean to put that there. Um, This is God. Now, you know the word phileo or Phyllis because of Philadelphia. Okay, uh, that's the word for love or lover, and so we have this God lover name. Now, here's what I don't know: this could be someone's actual name, Theophilus, and and maybe it is. If it is, likely who this is. If you're going to take the template of ancient Roman biograph- biographies, this is a benefactor who paid for this document and this process. So this is someone who paid the money for this to get done. Now. Whether his name is really uh, Theophilus or not, I have, I mean, we can take it and go, it is interesting, his name is God, someone who loves God. Could this be a Gentile who's wanting to know what really happened, I'm going to pay you to figure this out, and I want you to write me an account. It could be, and his nickname in this is Theophilus, God lover, someone who loves God. Um, So we don't know. Is his actual name that? Is this the benefactor? Is this, the the other question is this, is this actually a generic name that means anyone who is a lover of God who is curious about these things? I don't, I don't know. Um, but, the, but the reality is that's kind of an interesting dynamic. And maybe his name really is that. And if it is really that, then I go, that's still really cool. Um, that he's writing to a Gentile audience of people who are at times lovers of God who don't feel like they can have access to God through the priestly system, through the temple. But now through Jesus, they can. Now, as you flip over to the book of Acts, um, turn over there to chapter 1. And again, I think what you'll see is that uh, this is a part 1, part 2, and even the introduction helps set that up for us. So someone read those five verses for us. So the first five? Yeah. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction to the Holy Spirit, apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, 
but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right, good. So observations, I mean, obviously I have some things I want to pull out of it, but observations you have about these five verses. I mean, one, like you said, I never thought about Acts being part two of yeah. Yeah, yeah. So right, right away, and I'm the same way. Like, oh, okay, yeah, my former book. Well, which one was that? Well, Theophilus just kind of kicks it off. Um, here's what it is. Uh, so that's helpful. Any other thoughts? Any other connections that you see between those two introductions? I don't know. Sometimes it feels like a test. What is he looking us? What do you us to look for? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Look for look for that. Is there something there that says Lucas still cares about? Like being an investigator, a pesky reporter, convincing proofs. So after the resurrection of Jesus, we have these convincing proofs that he is alive. And so Luke actually goes into some greater details to talk about some of those convincing proofs. Luke's the only one to mention that road to Emmaus where Jesus appears in front of those two who are on the journey, which again is another journey, another you know, journey or travel narrative. Um, and so Luke tells that, but, but again, we have this introduction that says, okay, I'm giving you proofs. Here's what really took place. Um, so that's important for us to understand because I think there is overlap. What happened with Jesus happened in the church, but also is meant to continue in us. Here's the weird thing about the end of the book of Acts. And we're not saying the book of Acts, the book of Acts stops with a cliffhanger with Paul. We don't know if he's going to die or not. What, what's happening is he's speaking and even though he's in jail, he's speaking, but his speaking is unhindered. Like, he's still being effective. Surprise, surprise with Paul. But then the story just, like, ends there. And, and you're kind of going, what happened? Well, the very fact that you're sitting in this room today, studying the Gospels as, you know, kind of this nation of mainly Gentiles, um, well... That's what happened, is this message kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And so both in Acts as well as in in the Gospel of Luke, we have Jews and Gentiles coming to the faith. So if if Luke cares about the temple, which he does, um, which and again, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. One of the things we discover in the book of Acts is that there were a large number of priests that came to the faith. Now, I used to think, Anytime I heard the word priest, that I thought high priest, kind of the priest I see in the Jesus movies. Most priests weren't of the high priestly class, the high priestly family. We were talking about this before class started. There, there was a social power structure to the temple structure. And at this point in Israel's history, to be of that chief priest family, you had that handed to you by the, not the people of Israel, but by the opposing government. So you had the role of the chief priestly family handed to you because they knew that you would fall in line with what they needed you to do. You were a puppet. So they kept you comfortable. They gave you money. They gave you houses, all those kinds of things. So when you talk about Caiaphas and Annas and that chiefly priest family, um, that's the dynamic. But priests in large were so much bigger than just those families that were the social elites in Jerusalem, the Sadducean kind of political party. Priests lived all the way throughout the, the tribes of Israel, if you remember. And what would happen is, is they would travel in 
during their time of service in the temple, and then they would go back out to the cities and vineyards and fields designated for them. They had their allotments around the different tribes. So when I think about priests, I think about that political entity. A lot of priests were actually poor. And because of the corruption in the temple, sometimes they weren't getting the tithes and the money that was due to come to them to support them because it was all being stuck up here. And so a lot of time priestly families were actually, actually suffering because of the corruption in the priestly system, the temple system, those types of things. We have an example of two um, families who have priestly connections at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Um, one of them is in the temple because it's his time, his allotment, to come and serve in the holy uh, place. And it's there that he receives a vision that John the Baptist, he's going to have a son. And so it's, it's intriguing to me that in Luke's gospel, even though he is focusing you know, dominantly on the Gentiles, we also have kind of this temple priest theme as well, that priests, the outcasts, not the outcast priests, but, but these unexpected families um, are starting to come to the Messiah, and there are these priestly families that are coming. So that's a little bit of an intriguing uh, dynamic that plays out um, in these opening two uh, really kind of books as we see these chapters unfold. Um, so as some other unique traits as we walk along, and here's what we'll do next week is we'll actually start dissecting. We're going to stay in Luke. We'll start dissecting some stories um, and then looking at case studies more specifically next week. Um, Luke is the only one to include songs, um, these significant songs in the birth narratives. Um, if you grew up in like a, uh, maybe like a Methodist uh, church movement or even like Catholic, like the Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat, um, these songs are important parts of the tradition of how they would celebrate Christmas, which by the way, we're doing Advent and those types of things now as well. So we highlight these songs as we follow along. Well, Luke's the one who does this. We want to ask that question, Why? And, and that's one of the things that we'll focus in on uh, next week. Uh, we've already mentioned his uh, emphasis on Savior or salvation. So eight times in Acts, nine times in Luke, and notice how many times in the other, three, uh, the other two synoptic Gospels. Zero times, this word Savior or salvation. So this is a word that Luke cares about, and that makes sense. Number three is one of my favorite things about Luke. Luke loves apparently to eat. Maybe it's not just to eat. Um, maybe it's he loves the idea that Jesus sat down with people who were outsiders. Um, I preached a sermon series uh, one summer at our church back in Illinois called Potluck Theology. Uh, the title is from actually a friend of mine. Um, but here's what we did. We, we met in a room kind of like ours here at CCO um, where the chairs could theoretically all come out, although all of ours are zip tied together, if you've noticed. Um, we, we took out all the chairs one summer. Attendance is usually lower during the summer, and we set up tables. And we all met on Sunday morning around tables for church. Crazy thing happened. It was noisy. Like, we couldn't even start because it was so noisy in the room because people were talking more than what they were when we have them sitting in western rows. I mean, that's our, the way we do church. Um, even the ancient synagogue was built with everyone facing toward the middle, so you had two levels, you had men and women up on the second floor, um, but they were all facing in uh, toward the center, although you did have kind of a stage arc center podium uh, facing the front as well. But everyone was kind of facing each other in community. Um, and so churches have started to kind of 
curve that line a little bit. Architecture does communicate something, by the way. Um, in the Christian church, traditionally in the past, we've had, if you've looked at a like traditional 1950s or you know, earlier church, uh, there's a communion table up front. Do this in remembrance of me. A pulpit right behind that. A preacher right behind that. And oftentimes, um, the baptistry right behind that. Well, architecture actually communicates some of the things that become core for what we believe. Whether intentional or not, we still do some of those same things. We put certain things up front or not up front um, because of that. And so, you know, as, as we're looking at this banquet and meals, Luke loves this because of this fact that Jesus ate with people. And he ate with people who were unlikely people. So we, we had this, this entire sermon series, and this is what we walked through, these meals. So he has 10 different scenes of table fellowship, and he's the only one to mention some things of Jesus. For instance, Jesus eats with sinners. Three times he does this. Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus eats with sinners. And obviously, man, that's a, that's a huge deal for him. A couple of other things about focusing on outsiders. Tax collectors, he has unique stories. Pharisee and the publican and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Luke's unique in that. He talks about the poor and prostitutes more often, of course, Gentiles, and then Samaritans. And then women just become this huge theme. And I, again, I go, it, this is kind of just that group of unlikely people to be around the resurrection story and the birth narrative story. Just like these unlikely first century, from that worldview, people to be insiders. I don't know if you know this or not, but when it comes to like evidence... Um, one of the things that actually helps me see the Gospels as being actual first eyewitness accounts and not just something that's fabricated is the fact that women um, are the first ones to witness, be the testimony to the resurrection. And if you were making that up, I don't, in the first century world, that wouldn't likely be who you'd put there um, because their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. So why would, you put, why would you put them in the story? And yet Jesus goes, watch this. And he puts them at that place in the story as key testimony. And, and we know that's true all the way across Jesus' ministry, this elevation of people uh, who are at times in culture uh, looked down upon or seen as lesser than. Um, so I've just listed from you uh, there in the handout some of those stories, uh, some of them not unique, but just, again, this thread that's pulled all the way throughout this gospel. Uh, the last thing I want to point out that's just kind of a unique trait um, before we do a case study um, is this phrase, must be, I must be. I don't, you know, Paul or Luke has this unique both in Luke and in Acts, um, but this phrase, like, it just kind of intensifies things. Jesus, I must preach the good news. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And it's just kind of this intensifying word. I don't know, you know, if there's necessarily a lesson to be learned. It's just kind of a unique trait um, in Luke's writing style. Um, here's the other thing, last thing uh, that we want to point out for today. Um, Luke has more parables than the others. Uh, so likely, if you're looking for a parable, it's likely that it's in Luke's gospel. Um, and so next week when we come together, we're going to study some of the parables that are the same and yet have some nuances that are different between the synoptic gospels. We'll also study some parables that only Luke includes and ask the question, why, why does he include it and the others don't? What, what reasons might he have for that? For that? And so we'll study some of these parables. Notice 28 of the 40 total parables that Jesus tells are in Luke. That's a significant chunk. And 18 of those are unique. And, and so Luke has um, some stories. Now, some of those are like Luke 15, where he'll plug together three stories of three lost things. 
So there's the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And again, you have this idea of an, something that is um, outsider or lost coming in and it being celebrated. And if you remember right, the kind of the culminating point of that lost son story is not actually that the son comes home. It's that the brother, the, the brother is angry about it. And as you think about Luke, he's traveled around with, he's traveled around over and over and over again with Paul. And Paul goes to the synagogue. And it's this older brother who's, you know, been faithful to God, been faithful to God. But the son, the child of God, that comes running back from the Gentile fields and feeding pigs, comes running back and says, I'm not even worthy to be calling your son, just call me your servant, God-fearer kind of a thing. The father welcomes him back, throws a party, but the older son, the one who thought he had been faithful, who has a higher view of himself as a son, is angry about it. You think Luke saw that played out over and over again with Paul? Yeah, he did, because they like tried to kill Paul for it. They, they rioted because of it. And they, I imagine, treated people like him. He was an outsider, a Gentile, traveling around with Paul. Do you think he ever experienced racism? Yeah, he did in that setting, in that context, in that way. Um, and so these stories that Luke tells, when we start to couch them in his experiences, but also how he's seen the church play out, it can give new life to some of these stories to where we go, oh, wow, when Jesus tells that parable and then Luke records it, there's actually this layer that's behind the story that we can tap into to go, yeah, this plays out again and again and again. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of a big picture overview this week. Uh, next week, we'll do more of the case studies. I knew we wouldn't have time for that today. Uh, questions, thoughts about kind of where we've been? Big picture snapshot. All right, sounds good. I, yeah, exactly. Chew on it. Um, we're going to come back and dive in and look at individual texts next week. And, uh, and I'm glad, again, glad you're here to, to study along with us. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.